The sermon that you are about to view is not a replacement of your participation and commitment to a local church, but we do hope it blesses you. church. My name is David. I'm one of the pastors here. And oh, I always like doing this at the, the beginning of the year. Let's see uh, how many languages we can say Happy New Year in. I'll start. Happy New Year. <laughs> English. Um, let's see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Got manner. Oh, there you go. This Japanese. So that's different than Merry Christmas, which is Merry Christmas, right? Yeah, I, I learned that one. Okay, over here, I heard something. No? Oh, Gonghei Fat Yeah, yeah, very good. Okay, so, okay, and then, yeah. Let me hear again. No, in front of you. Yeah. Oh, oh very good. Very good. Wow, lots of languages. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's a lot of words to say Happy New Year. That's good, yeah. That's good. What else? Yeah. Say again. And that is Italian. Oh, very good. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Romanian, all right. Brave, what do you got? Oh, very cool. Anything up here? Yeah. I think that's Anna. You go say it. That's Polish, right? <laughs> Only because I know you're from Poland. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. Slovak. Oh, very cool. Wow, this is so good. In the corner. Very cool. Good. Wow. That's a lot of language. Yeah, one more. Portuguese. That is awesome. That is so cool. Oh, I see that. <laughs> That's Tagalog. Oh, wow. Well, way to go. That's so Oh, one more. <laughs> Very cool. That's, that's in Turkish, right? Wow. Well, Happy New Year. That's really good. <laughs> Really? That is awesome. I have to say, one of, my, um, one of the things I've always loved about our church, especially uh, more in recent years, is just um, how the church is a supernatural community. The church is made up of people from all different backgrounds, people that, but for the grace of God, probably wouldn't hang out with each other. But because of the grace of God, we are all nations, one body, worshiping one Lord. And that's a very cool thing. And I love just, just hearing a little bit of that uh, this morning. Well, it's New Year's, and nothing says Happy New Year like the book of Judges. <laughs> There's just no segue into that. Um, 
<laughs> we are starting the new year, carrying on in our series on the Old Testament, by looking at probably the darkest book in the Bible, the book of Judges. How many of you read the book of Judges? Put up your hand. Yeah, quite a few of you. Yeah. It's a remarkable book, but man, is it ever dark. But here's the thing. As I've been studying this book and I was preparing for today, one of the things I did realize is that I think, I think the book of Judges is quite apt for the beginning of a new year. Because at the beginning of the new year, sometimes we do resolutions, right? New Year's resolutions, you've heard of those? Uh, I asked last, last service, I said, how many of you do New Year's resolutions? One person did. Um, <laughs> but usually, you know, a New Year's resolution is, is usually you look back at the past year and you look at some habits, some patterns in your life that ah, you're not really happy about. And in the new year, you, you, you resolve to adopt new habits, new patterns to make your life hopefully a bit better than the year before. So you say, you know, I'm going to exercise more, read more, learn the skills, spend more time with family, or whatever it happens to be. And so a new year marks a bit of a cross. It's a bit of a crossroads. Um, and the question that usually comes up in the new year is, how long will these resolutions stick? Like, will they go past February or will they, you know, kind of run out? Well, it's interesting because in the book of Judges, God's people, Israel, they're standing at a crossroads. And they have to make a critical decision on how they're going to live their lives. And the question that's facing them is, are they going to embrace God's purposes for their lives? Or are they going to live on their own terms? And at the beginning of the book of Judges, we, we see a new chapter for the people of God, for Israel. Because for, for the first time in history, we have a generation of people who have the opportunity to live their lives free, unencumbered, before the direct rule of a loving God. For the first time, they, they've entered the land. The, the land has been conquered. They've entered the land, the promised land. For the first time, they're in a position to live out God's promise for Israel, God's promise that he gave to the forefather Abraham, that Israel would be a great nation and that through this nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed, that they'd be a light to all the world. And so the big question, the big question as they enter the land, the big question is this, how are they going to do? How are they going to do? Will they live out their calling to be a light of the world or will they go in a different direction? Which way will they walk? Will they walk with Yahweh, with God? Or will they walk on their own terms? And I think, I don't know about you, but I think that's the question that I face. That's the question we all face at the beginning of a new year. How is this new year going to turn out for us? How, what is our life going to look like this year? Will we live our lives in alignment with the one who created us, who loves us, who cares for us, who rescues us? Or will we continue to go our own way and live independently of God? So, here's what makes the book of Judges one of the saddest books in the entire Bible. At this key moment, at this key junction, at this crossroads, when there's so much potential, the choices that Israel makes are ruinous. They're terrible. And as we make our way through the book, Rather than, um, we, we, we discover that rather than embracing God's purposes, the people of God, Israel, they progressively abandon God's kingdom desires and they go their own way. And as a result, everything falls apart. 
And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to explore this, and uh, we're going to look at the beginning. We're going to look at Judges chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, can you turn to Judges chapter 2? Judges is just a few books into, the, into your Bible, so it's right at the beginning. You'll come across it. Judges chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 6. So Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. In honor of God's word, let's stand together as I read this. Judges chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Herez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Now, after this, or after that whole generation had gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. Father, this is your word. And you speak to your people. You are with your people. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Soften hard hearts so we may receive what you have to say to us this morning and respond courageously. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, as I've been preparing, reading through the book of Judges, I'm realizing just what a powerful book this is for the church today. Now, my buddy um, Ivan's been telling me this for years. And uh, the, the book of Judges is such an interesting book. It's so carefully put together, and you need to really pay attention to what the narrator is saying. Uh, in particular, what he includes and what he, what he leaves out. And so if you decide to read the book of Judges this week, I would encourage you to do this. What you'll notice is you're going to notice that there's a, there's a certain pattern to the book of Judges. Um, there are 12 cycles of behavior that repeat themselves throughout the book of Judges, but they don't just repeat themselves like a, like a cycle. It's, it think more, not of a cycle, but as a cycle that spirals downwards. And that's what makes reading the book of Judges so difficult because it is a steady spiral downwards. And, and it's heavy. It's heavy reading. It's kind of watching, like watching someone fall into addiction and fall deeper and deeper and see their life disintegrate and also the lives of those around them. That's kind of what it's like when you're looking through the book of Judges. And here's a pattern. Here's, the, here's one of the patterns, uh, how it looks. The, uh, the, the cycle usually begins with a time of peace. And there's a time of calm when at the beginning of the book of Judges, we realize that Joshua and the people have come into the land. They've conquered the land-ish. Um, the Canaanites 
are largely defeated along with their idolatrous practices. And there is a, a time of peace and prosperity. There's even an attentiveness to Yahweh, to God, and walking in his ways. But before long, complacency sits in, uh, kicks in. Where hearts begin to grow cold, people begin to grow, uh, lose their focus, their attention wanders, and they begin to notice some of the practices of the surrounding nations, in particular some of the Canaanites that are still around. And slowly, slowly, they begin to forget their calling to be a light to the world, and rather than affecting the world, they become infected by the surrounding practices, which leads to sin. And whenever our hearts turn from Yahweh, um, our hearts begin to sin. And so what happens is you find the, the Israelites, they begin to, to adapt and adopt some of the practices of these, these pagan religions around them. They begin to mix it into their own worship of, of God. And this affects how they live. They begin actually to take on and they begin to worship these false gods. And they begin to take on a lot of the ethical practices associated with this, including temple prostitution and even child sacrifice. It gets really dark. And invariably, sin leads to pain. And they experience the pain that sin brings about. And what usually happens is one of these surrounding nations invades Israel, and they take over Israel, and they oppress and enslave the people. And things get so bad that Israel finally cries out to God, and they cry out, God, will you not rescue us? And God raises up a judge. Now, when you think of judge, don't think of robes and a wig. That's not what these judges are. Think of, um, think of Braveheart or uh, like a warlord, kind of a religious warlord. That's kind of what's, what's going on. And this, this judge, either he or she, steps up and they fight off um, the oppressors and, they, and the people's heart begin to turn back to God for a while. And that leads to a time of peace again. But again, as you make your way through the book, there's this spiral, and the spiral goes down, and things get worse. Each cycle is worse than the one before. Now, it's easy to read the book of Judges and to, well, judge, to say, oh, how could they keep falling into this deadly cycle? How could this, I mean, couldn't they see the pattern? How could this always happen to them? And it's easy to kind of shake our heads at a distance and say, how could they not learn until, I'll speak for myself, until I look at my own life. And, and that's my pattern. And that's the pattern of my life. And I don't know about you, but the danger that I experience in my life, I mean, we can call it spiritual entropy. You know, entropy, entropy is moving from order to disorder. So this is spiritual entropy where my life with God goes from order to disorder. From walking with God and walking in his ways to walking in ways of destruction. And so that's why I think we need to look at the book of Judges. And so what I'd like to do in our time this morning is I want to look at what are some of the causes of spiritual entropy? What, what are some of the causes that we see in the book of Judges? And maybe what are some of the causes we see in our own lives? How does this show up in our own life? So what are some of the causes of spiritual entropy? Well, the first cause happens when you and I forget who God is and what he's done. Right? When you and I forget who God is and what he's done. And one of the most startling passages in the entire book of Judges is Judges chapter 2, verse 10. We just read this. And it says this, After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. 
They didn't know the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. How in the world could that have happened? How in the world could that have happened? How, how could you have an entire generation not pass on the truths of God to the next generation? I mean, these are people, they're raised with the words. They know, they know in Deuteronomy chapter 6, six uh, verse 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk on the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Take the truths of God and tell your children about it. Pass on the torch. And if you ever wonder why we invest so much in like our kids' church and uh, middle school and high school and even our young adults' ministry, I mean, it's because of Judges 2.10. And I think what happens is spiritual entropy kicks in when you have a generation of people whose hearts grow cold to God. Who, um, who no longer experience the joy of being in a relationship with God and walking with Him. It starts with parents and grandparents who have grown complacent in their faith, whose hearts have grown cold, who have forgotten the truths of God, who He is and what He's done, and they don't pass it on to their children. And I think that is a danger that we face today in the church. I think we struggle to pass on our faith to the next generation. Why? Why? Because our imaginations are being catechized by Netflix. Because our attention and our minds are more shaped by Disney Plus than what God's Word is saying. Now, I'm not saying this. To, I'm saying this to myself. And, you know, I see the value of preaching. I, obviously, I'm preaching, and, and, and I, th I think preaching is very important. But here's the truth. A 30-minute sermon, or in my case, maybe 35 um, <laughs> or 40, um, a 30-minute sermon is not enough for you to grow spiritually. It's not. You think about it. Think about it just in sheer numbers. 30 minutes compared to how long you spend on some kind of screen. We don't stand a chance. Which is going to have a greater influence in your spiritual life? See, you and I, what we need to do is we need to do whatever we can to be alive to the realities of Jesus. We need to practice the presence of God in our lives so that we can pass it on to the next generation. If we don't, we're in a lot of trouble. We're in a lot of trouble. And so we do this. And so I, I would encourage you, decide in 2020 to take my class on the Ten Commandments. <laughs> Get involved in a small group. Go on a missions trip. We need to remember who God is and what he's done and pass this on. The second cause of spiritual entropy is this. It, it happens when you and I use God as a means to an end when we stop seeing them in personal terms, and we certainly see this in, in, in Judges chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at that in a few minutes. Um, throughout the book of Judges, what happens 
is that Israel, they land in trouble and they're being oppressed and they're being enslaved and invariably they cry out, they cry out for help. But no sooner are they delivered do they fall back to their old ways. In fact, it even gets worse. And I think part of the issue that Israel faced is the fact that they saw God not as the one who loves them, not as the one who, who, who wants them to be free, not the one before whom they live, they breathe, and they have their being. They saw God as, as pain management. They saw God as one who could fix their problem. They saw God as, as, as a way out of their, their, the, whatever they happened to be facing. They saw God as a means to lessen their pain. Now, I get it. I get it. When I was uh, back in university days, a long time ago, uh, I was an atheist. I was a Marxist. And I remember one time, I think it was in my fourth year of university, I was writing a paper. And it was a long paper. It was like 50, 60 pages, right? And like a good student, it was due on Monday. So I started writing it on Friday night. Um, it was a long paper. And I, uh, because of the help of Jolt Cola, I, I got through the whole weekend. And uh, you remember Joel Cola, yeah. Um, and so I got through the paper. And uh, Monday morning, I had to hand it in. It was a very important paper. I had to hand it out to my, uh, my classmates. And it was a very key paper that I had to present. And uh, in the morning, I just finished. My eyes are blurry. I finished my paper. And um, like I was using this thing. It was new at the time. What was it called? Uh, a computer. Um, and so I had a Commodore Amiga which is state-of-the-art. Um, and so I'm typing, and I finish it, and a buddy of mine says, hey, do you know there's this thing called spell check? I'm like, spell check, what's that? Is that like whiteout? He goes, no, it's, this. it's different. Um, he goes, you can run your paper through spell check, and it will check your spelling. Huh, that's so awesome. I said, well, how do you do it? He goes, well, let me show you. So he does it, and my paper disappears. <laughs> and I said, dude, what, 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 what just happened? He goes, yeah, I don't know. I said, don't say I don't know. <laughs> don't say I don't know. Because I really don't know. I'm like, it was like 7 a.m. My class was at 8. And so I went over to a buddy's. Uh, he actually knew about, a little bit about computers. We woke him up. And I said, John, you got to help me out. And John said, oh, I'll try. And so he tried a bunch of things, didn't work. And what am I doing? What is this atheist doing? I'm praying up a storm. I'm praying up. Oh, Lord, would you not bring my paper back? And my, my buddy, he tries a few things. He goes, yeah, he goes, if this doesn't work, I can't help you. Comes up. I go, ah, awesome. Prints it off. Now, do you think after that moment, I said, oh, you know what, Lord, thank you. I am going to walk with you all my days. No. I didn't give God a second thought. Because he, I called upon him because it was pain management. And I think a lot of us, how many of us cry out to God in prayer when things are tough? And I think there's a place for that, of course. But too often we see God as pain management. And you think about it, if God is just a tool to an end, I mean, tools have no personality. A hammer's not a person. And here's the thing, God is never just a means to an end. He's, he's life. He's the beginning and the end, Right? So I think entropy kicks in when we just start seeing God as a, as, a, as a tool, as a means to an end. The third sign you see in the, in the book of Judges, it happens when we believe in God, but we don't trust in Him. When we believe in Him, but we don't trust in Him. 
Now, there's many examples in the book of Judges that we could look at, but I want to dive in just for a moment to look at uh, the story of a guy named Gideon. Uh, Gideon is a really important person in the book of Judges. He's kind of like the, uh, the turning point. It's like prior to Gideon, you got some good judges. Gideon's kind of the turning point where things go from good to bad and bad to worse. And Gideon is an interesting, he's a bit of a tragic figure because he's a guy who believed in God. He knew about God. He knew what God even had done. But he saw no connection between what he knew about God and how he lived his life. And we read about Gideon in Judges chapter 6 and onwards. And in Gideon's story, we see that Israel had been defeated and were being oppressed by a group of people called the Midianites. The Midianites. And so uh, Gideon, he had seen, he may have known about God doing amazing things in the past, but he knew, he didn't know God. And so when God shows up and, and, and God actually speaks to Gideon, he's, it's the only judge in the book of Judges that God speaks directly to. God speaks to him, he says, Gideon, oh great brave man of God. It's God's sense of humor because Gideon's not brave. Um, he says, you know, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Gideon's response is basically, if you read it carefully, he has no idea who this God is. No personal knowledge of God. And we know that he doesn't know God because if you look carefully, in his household, in his household, they're just worshiping Baal. He's worshiping a pagan fertility God. His whole family is. And so, yes, they believe in God, but in practice, they're worshiping this pagan God. And so God comes to him and he says, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Gideon doesn't trust him. Doesn't trust him at all. And before I start pointing fingers at Gideon, I've got to ask the question about those of us who call ourselves Christian. How many of us believe all the right things? We believe all the right things. Yes, Jesus lived, that he died, and he rose again. We believe all the right things, but honestly, we don't believe he makes any difference in our life today. Here's the thing. If you don't trust God, if you don't trust God, and God actually shows up, and you have a sense, you know what, I think God may be wanting me to do something. When, you're not, when you don't trust God, what do you do? If you're not sure it's God and you're not really sure who he is and God, but you get a sense that God is calling you to do something, one of the things you do is you look for a, a sign. God, I'm not sure this is you. No, God is speaking directly to Gideon. Gideon, I will be with you. He says it three times. I will be with you. And Gideon's like, yeah, I'm not so sure about this. You know, give me a sign. And so the first sign is, I mean, it's kind of a dumb thing. He, Gideon gets some soup and he gets some meat and he gets some cakes and he says, I'm going to offer this to you. If you're who you are, you know, do something with this. And so God in his grace he's, <clears throat> kind of goes up in flames. And, uh, but Gideon's actually treating God like a pagan, like a pagan would uh, treat a pagan God. He's offering this, this offering. And so God condescends. He says, fine, see, it's me. Gideon's like, okay, okay, that's good. Okay, one more sign, one more sign. Um, tomorrow morning, let's see. I'm going to put this fleece out, 
And if the fleece is wet and the ground is dry, then I know you're God. Wakes up in the morning, fleece is wet, ground is dry. He goes, oh, 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 you're God. Okay, I'm still not quite sure, though. Um, okay, switch it up. In the morning, if the fleece is, what's the opposite? Dry and the ground is wet, then I'll believe you. Okay, next morning. He goes, oh, I believe you, <laughs> sort of. And so God's saying over and over again, I will be with you, I will be with you. And so this is God's sense of humor. He, uh, actually, yeah. You know, how many times do we hear Christians talk about putting out fleeces? I hear this all the time. I'm not sure if God is calling me to do something, so I'm going to put out a fleece because Gideon did. Gideon is a negative example, <laughs> right? To put out a fleece is, is, is a pagan practice. And I hear Christians like, I just need to know it's a sign from God, so I'm going to put out a fleece. No. That's paganism. And I hear people, they're always looking for signs. It's like, well, I'm not sure if God's calling me to Mexico, but then I walk by a Mexican restaurant and it must be. No. That's not how you discern the will of God. All right? So don't. Anytime you come across any Bible study that makes anybody in the book of Judges a hero, walk away, okay? Gideon is not a hero. So God, in his great sense of humor, he says, Gideon, all right, muster an army. So Gideon's finally to get a little more confidence. He says, oh, okay, okay. So he gathered an army. There's like 32,000 people. And God says, you know, just to show you, you know, I know you're afraid, but I'm going to show you. You need to trust me. He says, all right. He goes, tell the people Anyone who's afraid to fight, tell them to go home. Yeah, no, not you, Gideon. You stay. Because uh, <laughs> Gideon's like, oh, great, I'm out of here. Um, no, you stay, Gideon. And so 22,000 people go. And he, he follows the story, and he whittles it down to 300. Finally, there's 300 people against this army. And Gideon's still, he's like, oh, I'm not so sure. And God's saying, I will be with you. I will be with you. Did I mention I will be with you? And even then, God says, look, it's great. He says, if you're still afraid, go listen to what they're saying. And he overhears them because they have a dream about, you know, their, this threat. And, and so basically, with 300 people, Gideon and this army of 300, they're able to defeat the Midianites. But even then, Gideon, man, he's a bit of a twit. Because even, even then, when they do the war cry, when they finally attack the Midianites, what does Gideon say? Because he's all full of confidence now. He's like, okay, everyone. He goes, for the Lord and for Gideon. That's what he says. For the Lord and for me. You know, like, this is awesome. And so you read about Gideon. And you see, you know, it's a person who, he may believe in God, but he doesn't trust him. And I think the story of Gideon, if anything, is a picture of God's grace and patience. And you know what? More often than not, I'm afraid. When God calls me to do things, I'm afraid. And I am thankful that God, in Gideon, chooses a faithless person who didn't really trust in him, but still uses him. I mean, that is a picture of grace, which I hold on to. The fourth sign of spiritual entropy is this. 
is when you and I become so enmeshed in the surrounding culture that we don't even notice that our lives have drifted from God. And this happens over and over again in the book of Judges. We find the Israelites always being, to draw, being drawn to worship Baal or Asherah rather than the true God. And why is this? Why are they always being tempted into this? Well, I think the main reason is that everyone around them was doing this. Everywhere they looked, people were worshiping Baal. And here's the thing. It was, it was a lot more convenient to worship Baal. You could worship Baal, this fertility pagan god. You could worship him in your backyard. You didn't have to go to Jerusalem. You didn't have to be in community. You find a tree, find a hill, and you're good to go. That's all you needed. Baal worship was based on self-gratification. In fact, sexual gratification. There's no commandments. There was no ethical side of things. So in Baal worship, there was lots of sex, no travel, and no responsibility. Well, who wouldn't be drawn to that kind of religion, right? But this way of thinking so affects the Israelites. They're so drawn into this that their whole life begins to change. And it's really interesting because by the end of the book of Judges, they're under the uh, oppression and slavery of the Philistines, another group, right? And, 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 and the Philistines' gods and all that. And at one point, one of the judges kind of fights back against the Philistines, and Israel says to him, what are you doing? Don't you realize that the Philistines are our masters? They got to the point where they're just like, this is just the way it is. Now, how often do we see that in the church today when we see stuff going on in our culture that is just some really dark stuff and we're like, that's, that's just the way it is. We shrug our shoulders. We look around us. We look at our life and we think, well, that's just the way it is. I, nothing's going to change. My life isn't going to Nothing. This is just the way it is. And the fact that God steps in to rescue Israel over and over again is a testimony of God's love and grace. Because God knows the danger of idolatry. What's the danger of idolatry? You become what you worship. That's why idols are so dangerous. It doesn't matter whether, whether, what the idol happens to be. It could be a good idol. It could be anything. But you become what you worship. And an idol is not, an idol is a block, an idol is not real. And so if you worship something that's not real, you become not real. If you worship nothing, you become nothing. If you worship something that's dead, you become dead. If you worship the author of life, you have life. That's why idolatry matters so much in the Bible. You become what you worship. Okay, I want to look at Samson just before we conclude. Because Samson is an interesting fellow. Well, another sign of spiritual entropy is when you and I squander potential. And Samson is an example of a leader who has a lot of potential, but whose life ends in a mess. Again, if you ever come across any curriculum that says, be like Samson, oh, he's one of the worst guys in the entire book. Uh -huh. yeah. I mean, Samson, his birth is miraculous. Um, his mother was barren. Um, he was foretold that he would be a chosen son dedicated to God even before he was born. He was to be a Nazarite. Now, what does that mean? It meant that his whole life was to be dedicated to God. In, in practical terms, it meant he was to touch no unclean thing. 
He was not to drink any wine or fermented drink and not to cut his hair. He was to live a life completely dedicated to God. Now, Samson, he knows this. He knows this about himself. He knows that this is his calling, but he just doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. He doesn't care about anything or anyone except for himself. And as he goes through his life, he squanders all this potential. We read, like, early on, he kills this lion, and then afterwards he touches this lion to get some honey or whatever. And he, so he touches a, a dead body right at the beginning. He holds a party. Everybody's drunk. There's drinking. Breaks the second vow. Third vow is um, Delilah, his sweetheart, um, <laughs> looks at the, she discovers the power in his, in his hair. So she cuts off his hair, and Samson loses his power. Now, why is cutting hair such a big deal? Does having hair give you power? Just for the record, having hair does not give you power. Okay, just, just so you know. The issue is it's the last sign of his vow. And, and it's, it's basically he's, he gives everything up. He gives up his calling, gives up everything. And in the end, Samson becomes weak, not so much because of the length of his hair, but because his heart is an absolute mess. Now, here this morning, there's so many of you with gifts. You have tremendous spiritual gifts that God has given you. But here's the thing. Having gifts is not enough. Now, Samson was gifted. It's what you do with your gifts that matters. It's how you steward your gifts that matters. So when you think about your gifts that you have, your spiritual gifts, how are you using them? I think this is really important. The last sign of uh, spiritual entropy is this, is when our selfish desires and our impulses begin to rule our lives rather than the Holy Spirit. And Sa Samson is a prime example. He's narcissism personified. If Samson wants something, he simply takes it. That's who he is. Uh, in Judges chapter 14, what do we read? We read about Samson's first wife. Chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Samson went down to Timnah, and he saw there a young Philistine woman, right? So a Baal worshiper. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Do you get a sense that Samson got to know her? Do you get the sense that Samson spent many an evening walking down by the river, talking into the wee hours of the night, getting to know this lovely woman? No. He sees her, he swipes right, and he takes her. And this is a pattern. You see this in chapter 16, verse 1. Chapter 16, verse 1, what does Samson do? One day, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute, and he went in to spend the night with her. Temple prostitute, most likely. Spends the night sleeping with her. In 16, chapter, uh, chapter 16, verse 4, we meet... Uh, Oh, good old Delilah. Samson sees her and falls head over heels in lust with her. And it's his passion for women, it's his passion for sex, actually, that drives him. It's not the Spirit of God. And it's interesting with, with Samson. Samson, if you look at his life, he lives his whole life looking at what he wants and taking it. Right? His eyes determine what he does. How does he end his life? 
What happens to his eyes? They're gouged out, yeah. And he's a person who lived his life by his own eyes, but he never lived his life doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It's really important. Now, it's easy for me to make fun of Samson and, and to write him off, but I have to look in the mirror. And I have to ask the question, what drives my life? What desires drive my life? I mean, Samson, he could, he could fight 100 men, no problem, but he couldn't, couldn't resist one woman. Some of you here, you're on top of the game, maybe in business or in school or whatever, but your marriages are a mess. Your personal life is a mess. And spiritual entropy, man, it is a real danger for us. And so we're heading into 2020. And so the question is, where are you at spiritually? And you and I are in a lot of trouble when, when we forget who God is and what he's done. When we think of God as a means to an end, a tool, rather than a person to worship, to stand before and to live. We're in a lot of trouble when we no longer trust God. We're in a lot of trouble when we become so enmeshed in the surrounding culture that we don't even notice that our lives have drifted from God. That, I mean, let me just tell you this one thing. At the end of the book of Judges, at the end of the book, it's ridiculous. In the last two chapters, there's nobody's named anymore. There's nobody who's, who has a name. And it's, it's kind of the narrator saying, you have a, a, a people that are so into themselves, so individualistic, that they cease to have an identity. And by the end of the book of Judges, you no longer have the Canaanites or the Philistines or the Midianites being the threat. It's Israel in full-on civil war, killing each other. It is so dark. It is so dark. And the very last line, as many of you know, in those days, there was no king. There was no, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We need to be careful that we don't squander the potential that, that we have. Some of you, I mean, one of the key themes in the book of Judges is the lack of leadership. The whole book is crying out for somebody to step up, but nobody steps up, or the people that step up are horrible. And many of you here have leadership gifts, but you're not stepping up. It doesn't have to be here. It could be in the community or whatever. But if you're a leader, you lead, right? And we're in a lot of trouble when our selfish desires direct us rather than the Holy Spirit of God. Do you see any of this in your own life? It doesn't take long before spiritual entropy kicks in. And one of the most disturbing passages is in chapter 18 where it says all this begins to take place Two generations from Moses. Two generations. And I've heard people say this, you know, that the church um, is one generation from extinction. Have you ever heard that? I think it's true. The church is one generation from extinction. But as a friend of mine once says, yeah, but the church is also one generation from revival. Amen. Right? And one of the key themes in this book of Judges, and it's hard to see, but it's there, and it's God's grace. There's one part in chapter 10 where it says God, he looks at Israel and he looks at their mess and it says, and God could bear Israel's misery no longer. Which shows you the, the heart of the Father. It hurts the Father's heart to see us drift from him. 
God is not a tool. He is life, and He desires for us to live abundantly. And He's done everything possible to make, to make this possible. He's given us His Son, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sins, for our wayward hearts, to die the death that we should have died so that we could live. And this whole book makes me want to cry out, Oh, Jesus, have mercy. <laughs> and so may 2020 be a year of new beginnings, new patterns, new ways of living, where you and I walk with Jesus alive to God, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in the midst of this darkness. We thank you for the warning that the book of Judges gives us this morning. Oh, Lord, May we not forget who you are and what you've done. May we never reduce you to pain management, but may we learn to walk with you and to trust you. Lord, bring people into our lives who can speak truth into our lives to see where we have drifted from you. Lord, you've given us gifts. May we live out those gifts in a way that honors you. And may we be attentive to the leading of the Holy Spirit to guide us in the ways of life. That is our desire. In Jesus' name, amen.